0: We hope you enjoy the show. As together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, hey friends, I have something very exciting to announce. This episode is officially our 200th episode. Now, this is truly hard for me to believe. And I remember when I first started this podcast with the encouragement of my good friend Nate Vineyard. I truly had no idea that just after a few years, that not only would this podcast be sustainable, but it has grown. In fact, now I have listeners in over 150 countries. It's been so fun to see this podcast grow, mostly because my vision for this podcast has always been uh, to provide you an introduction to some of the brightest leaders and best thinkers in the nonprofit space. And my hope is that's what you're getting week in and week out. So thanks for being part of the journey. I look forward to another 200 episodes with you. All right, now on to the show. Leadership or should I say effective leadership, is the engine that runs healthy nonprofits. You know, leadership is that skill that moves a vision or an idea to reality. Now, many of you are leading organizations today that just started as a dream. But over time, through passion, perseverance, and a whole lot of work, here you are today, leading a growing and hopefully thriving organization. Now, some of you who are listening may be wondering, well, how exactly do we navigate through the challenges of taking a nonprofit from a startup To a large, multifaceted organization. Well, my guest today has done just that and has a lot to share about the skill of leadership. My guest today is Pamela Davis. She is the CEO and founder of Nonprofits Insurance Alliance, or NIA. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you, my listeners, have your insurance through her organization. That Pamela had this vision to start this organization and literally started it from scratch with four people. And today she has well over a hundred employees and thousands of nonprofits who get their insurance through NIA. I think we're going to learn a lot from Pamela when it comes to her leadership insights on today's show. Thanks again for listening. Well, Pamela, thanks so much for being on the show today. Uh, You are the CEO and founder of the Nonprofits Insurance Alliance. And I understand that you founded NIA in 1989. It really is a solution to an insurance crisis that found scores of nonprofits suddenly uninsured by facing steep prices from commercial insurance carriers. And we're going to talk a bit more about what you offer in terms of insurance and how you've really solved that issue. But I thought I'd launch starting with leadership questions. This is a leadership podcast, and and as it relates to the nonprofit sector, you have a lot of experience doing leadership. And so I thought I'd start with my first question, is how you went about seeking out and securing initial startup funding for your organization. Talk about how you went about that and what were some of your first steps of doing that.
1: Well, that's a great question, and it, it in itself could take three or four hours, but I'll try to make that a little bit concise. I also want to say that For me, naivete was actually very valuable because as I look back and I think about what I was trying to achieve and the money that I was trying to raise for this very, very unusual idea, I might have been daunted and said, you know, this is just never going to work. There were a lot of people at the time telling me that this was not a good idea, that it was going to be harmful to nonprofits uh, and that I really should just try to find something else to do. That it was just going down the wrong path. So the first thing I had to do was kind um, of get over those voices, both outside and inside my head. And but but what really drove me was the the crisis was terrible. I mean, nonprofits can't operate if they can't get insurance. And so I saw all these wonderful organizations that were doing their best, but they couldn't continue with their mission if they didn't have insurance. And so I said, you know, if they're trying that hard. I need to do the same. I need to step up and see what I can do to figure this out. But I hadn't done any fundraising in the past, and I had never worked in an insurance company at all. So I was like a rank amateur. I had finished my graduate degree at UC Berkeley. I'd written a thesis on this topic. So I had some credibility, but I hadn't had any practical experience in the insurance industry or with fundraising. And so really, I think part of it was just my passion. That people didn't feel comfortable slamming the door in my face because I truly believed in what I was trying to do. So they wanted to see what they could do. A larger foundation that I went to, more, more uh, established, listened to me and said, You know, sounds interesting, but nobody's ever gonna fund this, probably. However, you might wanna talk to this other foundation, name of a Garbodi Foundation. And really said, if this person, if this organization, if this foundation will fund you, give you some credibility. So uh, make a long story short, he gave me, I think, uh, $18,000, their CEO. And uh, that got me going to the point where I ended up, my next meeting really was with the Ford Foundation, which was a huge step from there. But they had heard about the problem too. They had actually read my thesis. And so I ended up raising about a million dollars in loans, low-interest loans, from about six foundations, including the Ford Foundation, and then a total of about 330000 for actually setting up the, you know, paying my salary, setting up the cost of the legal and actuarial work. And, but all that to say, when we actually, when I was ready to start the organization, we started, I had 40000 in the bank and a million-dollar loan. And anybody who knows anything about insurance companies, that was just nuts. But, this, but anyway, I think it was my passion, actually, that kind of won the day. And the fact that there was a major crisis that no one else was coming up with anything else to solve.
0: Well, I learned that as you began to grow your organization, you worked really hard at and were very successful with passing certain bills at both the state and federal government level that really actually directly benefited your organization and not only your organization, but the nonprofits that you were serving. Now, we have had a lot of different guests on this show talk about the importance of working with the government sector, now mostly in terms of advocacy. Now, for you, it was directly for your organization with a, di- a little bit different focus on insurance, but what I'd like to ask you about is you've done a really good job with crafting and presenting these bills to these government entities. And I wondered, how did you do that? But at the same time, you kept the momentum going for your organization. Maybe you could speak to that.
1: Yes. Again, it it makes me a little bit tired when I look back at those years, but I, I'm glad I did it. Again, I want to say I was just Wanting to try to make sure that this organization could survive in the long run. And I felt that there were certain structural things that were really, really important. We are a 501c3, even though we're insurance companies, we're a C3 nonprofit now, but we weren't before. And so I really wanted to make sure that we could hold on to our mission and continue to do what we needed to do for the nonprofit sector in a transparent way. And I felt the best way to do that was to get to become a C3 ourselves so that we were like the sector and not separate from it. So I actually had three bills passed that I have pursued, two in California and one in Congress. And I will say the experience between the the California bills and the Congress bills in Congress, and I'm working on another one right now in Congress, completely different experiences. So let me talk a little bit about that. In California, there were two bills. One was to allow us to be tax exempt in California. And it was a little bit of an odd thing. We were made California tax exempt when we started. And then because of some stuff that went on at the federal level, the California government came back and retroactively revoked our tax exempt- exemption and sent us a tax bill for more money than we had ever made. So that was a, that was a wake-up call. But working through the state legislature, I have to say, much more straightforward process, a lot more collaboration, a lot of communication more so, at least in California, between the parties. And, you know, I did, at the end of the trying to get the tax bill through, I we did kind of get sideways with something that didn't have anything to do with us, but the author of our bill got in trouble with the fellow that was leading the committee that we had to get through. But I will say what I did with that was I actually went to the other party and said, would you take over this bill in collaboration with the person that was already carrying it? And in fact, it worked beautifully. That person actually took on the bill and said to the person that was threatening to kill it, don't do it. It's my bill now. And I want to see it through. That was a very kind of exciting at the last minute process. (laughs) That was actually the last day of the legislature that happened.
0: The last day. You got it in right at the nick of time, so to speak.
1: And I got a call from the legislator who was actually successful getting it through like five minutes before the session ended. It was by the skin of our teeth for sure. Yeah.
0: Sounds like it. But again, love your perseverance, your passion. All those are great traits. Um, And very helpful to, to know how you did that. Well, in general, for all nonprofit leaders, when we are building our organization, particularly if you're building it from scratch, one of the biggest challenges is how you navigate the various stages of growing your organization. So for example, when you first started out, I'm sure you made most of the decisions, for example, just on your own, because you had to. You had to you know, make quick decisions and move forward. Then as you began to grow, you've added staff, you've developed more of a process for decision-making, I'm assuming, that included more staff, at least the appropriate staff to lean into these decisions. So I'm sure you've done with the same with the hiring process, probably. So I'm curious, as you think through, as you've grown the organization you're leading, what have been some of the biggest challenges you have faced when you were building that new organization, particularly when you're navigating through some of those big changes and maybe growing through a, a big growth curve? How did you overcome those challenges and what kind of advice would you pass on to nonprofits that perhaps are growing their organization right now? Maybe they're going from five you know, employees to 20 or 20 to 40 or wherever they are, but they're going through these leadership challenges as they're trying to navigate their organization to a higher level.
1: Right. Well, as, as you say, we started our First holiday party, we had our spouses join us and it was a booth for four. And that
0: <laughs> that's awesome. You really did start from scratch.
1: We did start from scratch. We now have about 160 employees. So, you know, we have gone through transition. You know, I would say, you know, leaders have to be, they have to be willing to constantly change and to listen to the people that they're leading, because there is a lot of wisdom in the staff on the front lines. And if you think you know everything that probably as a young leader, I was in my thirties, you know, kind of feeling like I needed to know everything that really gets you in trouble because you have to be able to tell people when you really don't know quite what to do and engage them in trying to problem solve. Now, ultimately, you know, the leader typically has to make that final decision, but after the other folks in the organization have been hurt, Now, it is a different skill to try to supervise supervisors, right? So that's a whole other skill. And, you know, I think I worked on it. I think self-knowledge is like the most important thing for leaders in an organization. You have to really understand uh, what motivates you and then uh, try to understand what motivates others and really care about the success of other people and try to develop them. We have a culture where we absolutely try to promote from within. Uh, We have a very, very strong um, second-tier leadership uh, group. In fact, I'm uh, I'm preparing for the next change in our organization as we even move into uh, you know different levels of management. I'm uh, leading a team of like 20 of our middle managers through the next year. Once a month, we're getting together for four hours and. They're all over the country, but we're going to be Zooming in together and really talking a lot about culture. I mean, culture is really at the heart of it and mission and the strategy that we choose to achieve that mission are all very important. And I I will say, we have lately been able to recruit excellent managers from the field, from the nonprofit, from the insurance industry, because Frankly, that's where we recruit from is the insurance industry. But I think we're just getting around that we're a company that really lives our mission. And we have been able to recruit some terrific folks who, frankly, we call them renegades from the insurance industry. They haven't been able to do what is, the in their mind, the best for the customer. And they've heard of our reputation that we really do live and breathe the mission that we have. And they want to come and be part of that and use their skill sets to serve the nonprofit
0: sector. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There, you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. I really like a lot of the things you were saying in there, from culture to gathering people together, the differences with supervising supervisors. So another pitfall, as we kind of keep with that leadership theme, another pitfall of many organizations and businesses, for that matter, is this, that many organizations start with very clear values and a clear mission. But over time, some organizations can become either so rigid and close to innovation and change in the name of holding on to their values and their original mission that they become stagnant and they don't go anywhere. Uh, And yet, if organizations do not innovate and pivot to face these new challenges of the day, right, they can continue to really go the wrong direction, lose money, and not move forward. How have you sought along the way to maintain the core values of why you first started your organization, and obviously I'm assuming those are important values and you want them to continue, but at the same time you've encouraged innovation and creative change along the way?
1: So, I actually would like to say that I think some of the rigidity in the nonprofit sector is unfairly blamed on the leadership of the staff. And it very much lives at the board level. And that there are interesting. Yeah, okay. That there are some real um, problems in terms of diversity at the board level and really rigid thinking about the way things ought to be. I'm using air quotes here and uh, protecting the status quo instead of really giving the people that are doing the work the ability to do what they know is best. And I think that's part of our mission is, you know, we're a cooperative, but I've always believed that nonprofits know what's best and they have the right, they have, the, they have good hearts and they're smart. I mean, the sophistication of some of the nonprofit organizations is beyond what most could even imagine. And so for us, it's always about one, trusting that nonprofits are actually doing, know what they're doing right? So that's the the bottom line. Nonprofits know what they're doing. But but we do have a strategy statement that is, you know, inspired service and practical products at the right prices, effectively, independently delivered. So that that puts, for us, it puts inspired service at the very beginning, that nonprofits have been considered kind of second-class citizens in the insurance world. And we said, well, we're not going to just give them, you know, a, a model t Ford or something, we're going to give them like the best possible thing that they can have, best possible coverage and the resources. I mean, we're not just going to, you know, make sure that they barely get taken care of. We want to treat them like they deserve to be treated. So, yeah. So I, again, I'm a person who thrives on change. I, my biggest challenge probably is holding the reins so that we don't change too much. We, we tell people who join us, you have to love change. If you don't love change and innovation, you probably won't be happy here. And so we have like a risk uh, and opportunity committee where ideas bubble up from the staff level and then they they get across the organization, we get consider them and we adopt them or we so so we value the staff and the the innovation and the ideas. We think they know best what needs to get done, but we just have to have the right structure in place so that the, the risk it raised to us, as well as the opportunities, so that we can maintain that mission, maintain that culture, but allow within that structure and that culture and innovation to flourish.
0: Well, I love that idea that you have created a culture of innovation. I think that's super healthy. And yet at the same time, like you said, you maintain those core values. Now, building off of that question, another thing that nonprofits can often experience, it's a common experience for a lot of them, is mission drift. And what I found is most often this happens when there's significant funding for some new program that comes their way, but the program tied to this funding is actually not really part of their mission. And yet maybe they're desperate for a little extra funding, particularly if it's a large grant coming their way. And before you know it, if they take that funding and it takes them in a whole other direction, little by little, or sometimes very quickly, that organization can experience mission drift. How have you navigated around this problem, Mary? And has that been something that you've had to face and really deal with as an organization?
1: Well, thankfully, no, we don't rely on grants, right? So our operations all come from the nonprofits paying for their insurance coverage. So we really haven't had to to address that. And sadly, uh, the need for our product has not gone away. In fact, in the recent years, the insurance industry, the commercial insurance industry has really turned its back on large sectors of the nonprofit sector and they're not insuring them again. So, I mean, you know, I told you, we started with a million dollar loan for capital. We now have 275 million in surplus. That's all from nonprofit.
0: That's fantastic. That's, wow. That's
1: all about 700 million in assets overall. So this is just from little, from large, medium and small nonprofits pulling their resources together And doing what the insurance industry said is not possible and still is saying is not possible to insure certain kinds of nonprofits. I mean, we have the data. We know that the practices that end up causing nonprofits to not be insured are because of the insurance industry and their practices, not because nonprofits are not well run or not well managed or not insurable.
0: That's so interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit more about NIA. When you established this, you really were committed to providing stable and affordable insurance coverage to nonprofits of any size. You even mentioned small and, and medium size even, and including nonprofits that most carriers may think they're too risky to insure, such as those serving youth or seniors or animal rescue shelters, et cetera. So again, why did you start the NIA in the first place? You've kind of made a few mentions here and there, but what really prompted you to go forward and actually say, we've got to do this? And what have been the results so far? You already mentioned how much money you've been able to build up and how many people have joined you, but maybe you can talk about an example or two of a nonprofit that really what you provided really made a difference in making them move forward. Absolutely.
1: So first of all, my motivation really was I wanted to use my business talent to really improve our communities, including the natural world. I mean, so nonprofits in my mind spend a lot of their time fixing Problems that are created by the commerce in the for profit world. And so I wanted to support what they're doing. And this premise, my, my basic premise in starting this was that actually very few nonprofits are poor risks. They are generally very well managed. Yes, there are a few bad apples, but that is not the nonprofit sector generally. And the mistake I think that the insurance companies make is that they put these classes of business, like you mentioned animal rescue shelters, uh, youth services, that sort of thing. And they consider them to be all bad risk because they've gotten surprised by some claims. Well, I think the vast majority, uh, particularly for the nonprofit sector, the community-based nonprofit sector, of the surprises is really because the insurance uh, underwriters, the insurance companies, just did not price these accordingly. There's a certain amount of risk that goes with taking care of hundreds of kids, right? That's what the insurance is going to cost. We do it on a very consistent basis. Our prices are, for example, in California, our base rates that we use for the key, the general liability coverage, we are still charging at a credit of 50% off what the 1988 rates were, right? And that's
0: That's impressive. Wow. Yeah, And
1: because there's a lot of consistency though in, in the nonprofits themselves. So- So I just think there's a misunderstanding generally that nonprofits are not well managed. And for example, I also want to point out that nonprofits, the sexual abuse issue that's kind of blown up the insurance industry right now and concerns about uh, reviver statutes and that sort of thing with sexual abuse. We were the very first company to offer an affirmative coverage form for sexual abuse. So we actually laid out the policy and said, this is what you'll be covered for. Now, everybody does it, right? But it was something that we started, again, in 1988. And there wasn't a policy form. We had to write it. However, the problems you see right now with colleges and universities and and the churches and that sort of thing, the problem is not an excess of sexual abuse so much as an excess of bureaucracy that kept the lid on it to allow it to continue to happen, right? Right. And so that's the problem. And so now, you know, we're saying, oh, oh there's so much sexual abuse that happens at these organizations. It wouldn't have been allowed to happen if there wasn't a bureaucracy protecting. Well, nonprofits, particularly community-based nonprofits, don't have those bureaucracies. Something goes wrong, something bad happens, we pretty much find out about it, right? right. And oh, so, yep. so, but unfortunately, commercial insurance companies have painted the whole sector Uh, with that brush and not distinguishing between community based nonprofits. So a similar thing with animal rescues, Uh, animal rescues, you know, cat rescues, that's not a problem or most dog rescues, but there are some very devoted animal lovers that think that every dog can be rehabbed, right. And rehomed. Well, if you have a dog who was bitten before and you knowingly rehome that dog, there is no defense for that. Right. So we have to be able to underwrite and say, there are certain types of animal rescues that are just fine. Others are not going to be able to insure them.
0: It's so fascinating. And because you are a 501c3, I like the fact you said that earlier that you are one of the nonprofit 501c3, so you understand those challenges. And then to provide things with these kinds of things in mind, in other words, providing this insurance at an affordable rate for these organizations that if it wasn't for what you're offering and where else would they go? And, and if they couldn't find the right insurance for some of these organizations that do serve with a heightened risk because of the people they serve, you wouldn't be able to function, right? I mean, if you didn't have the coverage, you literally would have to shut down. And so I applaud the, your efforts to provide that. So these nonprofits who have really good missions can really provide this great service for all kinds of different needs that no one else really wants to touch.
1: I do want to give you an example of that. The best example we have of that, and we have hundreds, and you asked me for an example, I'm happy to provide this. The best and recognizable example is Black Lives Matter. They came to us, they came to us after being declined for coverage. This was about five or six years ago by 90, that's nine zero insurance companies. 90 insurance companies refused to even offer a quote for the coverage for Black Lives Matter. Their broker was a large broker, had access to lots of markets, and just got a flat blanket. No. Well, they couldn't operate. They can't have fundraisers. They can't have marches. They can't do their thing if they can't get insurance, right?
0: That's right. Exactly. So
1: they came to us, and we said, yes, of course we can do it. And they are, you are know, fine. I mean, it was okay.
0: So you stuck your neck out and said, let's do it.
1: But we didn't feel like it was sticking our neck out at all. And frankly, it turns out it wasn't. So I just, that's just one example, but there are a lot of civil justice organizations that we've insured in the last year and uh, related to this issue.
0: Now, great example of that. And again, thanks for taking a stand, if you will, and, and leading in that way. Well done. All right. Well, one more leadership questions. You've worked with hundreds of nonprofit organizations and leaders. What's the single greatest challenge facing the nonprofit sector this year and even into the future? As you look into the future, what would you say to that?
1: This might surprise you, but I alluded it to uh, earlier in our conversation. I would say too much whiteness, just really, particularly those that are holding the purse strings and calling the shots. This creates like rigid and unpredictable funding practices that are established by people that most don't live in the areas, they don't live in those trenches, they don't do the work. And yet they're the ones saying, this is how you should do it, and this is how much it should cost. There's really an over-reliance on consultants with these ideas of theory of change and and these awful, ridiculous applications for funding that are way more than are required. Nonprofit leaders are spending so much money trying to get the, the funds that they need. And they're trying to fit in these boxes of the establishment and the status quo. And we really need to uh, take a hard look at the sector and say, there's just too much white as particularly in the leadership.
0: Interesting. So just the lack of diversity, you feel like is one of the biggest challenges to overcome.
1: Absolutely. But particularly in the leadership and acknowledging that the, uh, you know the people that happen to hold the money don't necessarily know the solutions. I mean, I hope that we would have the humility to say, wow, you know, we've gotten us here. Is where we are now, where we want to be, where we want to go in the future? And if not, who should be leading us? Who should be giving us the ideas? And trusting the nonprofits, again, back to my original thesis, nonprofits themselves should be trusted. I believe in, you know, multi-year grants that are uh, unrestricted, and the nonprofits themselves ought to be making the determination in terms of how they're funded because otherwise we're going to keep making the same mistakes as a sector over and over and you know we like to wag our finger at nonprofits and say you're not being effective but i point right back to those that are giving out the money and i think they need to take a hard look at themselves
0: well i love your statement we ought to trust the nonprofits, I think that, you know, as a nonprofit leader myself, and I work with a lot of different nonprofit leaders, I I could agree with you more. And and again, it doesn't mean there's not bad apples, so to speak, you know, in the nonprofit sector. Of course, any sector has, you know, the bad actors and and people that really are not in it for the right reasons. But in general, most nonprofit leaders and most nonprofit organizations, I believe, are really in it for the right reasons and have a great mission. And I would agree, ought to be trusted, certainly with donors. Uh, One trend, ironically, you bring this up, I've noticed since COVID is there has been a a shift, I would say. A lot more donors now are much more comfortable just giving unrestricted gifts to nonprofits. I think at the end of the day, I think that message got out is trust the nonprofit And because so many nonprofits had to pivot during this COVID period and use that money for various things that were felt like sometimes daily were changing, the ability to have an unrestricted gift was so much more valuable than a restricted gift. And so I do think at least that message is beginning through. So I'm glad you've been a proponent of that. Well, for my listeners, could you tell us how can people find a little bit more about your organization? Of course, there may be some people that don't have a good insurance plan and they're shopping around. So maybe they want to find out more about what you offer and maybe you want to to find out a little bit more about you, where would you send them?
1: Well, if you're not one of the 24,000 nonprofits that we presently insure, you should go to insurancefornonprofits.org. It's insurance for nonprofitsorg no hyphens or punctuation, of course.
0: Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for what you've done. And I love some of the leadership principles you've shared today because Pamela, I think there's a lot of people out there that have a passion like you had so long ago and they want to build it. And maybe they're not at 116 with your employees, but they're moving that direction. And so thank you for sharing your insights on the show today.
1: Thanks very much. Appreciate your time.